Welcome to a Doom to Repeat mini-episode. Hello! This recording comes from a side project I did with the Georgia Association of Historians. At their 2016 conference, I recorded several um, presenters in an effort to kind of share the research that is being done at Georgia at the local level. This interview um, is on the topic of um, the Confessions of Nat Turner by Ben Parton, and it's a kind of interesting look at the kind of necessity of studying such materials and the way that these materials, specifically the Confession of Nat Turner, which is a, of course, a, a famous slave rebel leader uh, that led a kind of uprising, um, how it's been interpreted over time. Um, you'll note the change in music in a second, of course, because this is for a different now defunct project, but I hope you enjoy the research done by Ben Parton. Welcome to GAH On Air. Welcome to the first and what I hope will be many Georgia Association of Historians podcasts. I'm Nick Hoffman, your host, and today we listen to an interview I did with Ben Parton, a Clemson student um, who is researching as his focus uh, slavery and emancipation. In particular today, he talked with me about the Nat Turner Rebellion. Throughout this podcast, you'll hear my interview with him interspliced with a few audio clips here or there. Um, his website, if you're interested, is bennettparton.com. That's B-E-N-N-E-T-T-P-A-R-T-E-N. And um, check it out. He has an interesting blog there with plenty of interactive stuff. Uh, without further ado, though, um, I hope you enjoy as we talk about Nat Turner's Rebellion and the Confessions of Nat Turner. So Nat Turner was a slave who, in uh, 1831, he led one of the largest slave revolts uh, in American history. Uh, he was in Southampton County, Virginia, which is kind of southern Virginia near uh, Norfolk. And uh, it was a very bloody uprising, uh, and Turner was actually able to escape the rebellion uh, after it was suppressed, and he hid out in a forest for three months. Uh, and during that time, the newspapers were uh, rife with speculation as to who could have been behind, you know, uh, you know, such such violence, and they eventually found that it was Turner, uh, but they couldn't find him. And uh, he was apprehended uh, three months later uh, after the initial rebellion was suppressed. Uh, and as he was awaited, awaited his hanging, a uh, local attorney turned journalist named Thomas Gray uh, found the way to get access to Turner and uh, was able to speak with him and record his testimony, which uh, was later entitled The Confessions of Nat Turner and uh, published in uh, one of the local newspapers there and then later disseminated across the country. Now it's the document we have today, The Confessions of Nat Turner. And in it, it's uh, quite remarkable. Turner uh, explains that what actually led him to enact the rebellion was you know, not his own um, desire for vengeance. It wasn't necessarily freedom. Uh, he says that he had a divine sanction from God uh, through that he received through a, a series of cryptic visions and revelations uh, to enact this rebellion. And as he's explaining this to Thomas Gray, 
Uh, he uses language that is quite peculiar in a lot of ways, and he's borrowing uh, biblical language. He's making allusions to various biblical passages, and he, uh, you know, it becomes quite clear that a lot of the stuff he's speaking about is coming directly from Revelation. And so, in, a, in one sense, he's making his testimony a biblical narrative that portrays him as a instrument of God's final judgment, um, and. So he's speaking. He's uh, speaking to Thomas Gray as he's doing this, and um, so much of the language that he's using, he's kind of cloaking it in a very uh, colloquial type of slave language that is, um, you know, it's one scholar calls it an era biblical language, uh, and that it's very imprecise and it's designed specifically for oral cultures. So we're talking about an era in which. Slavery is kind of the cusp. Um, what, what, what was the date of this? Do you remember? Uh, it's August 22nd, 1831. So we're talking very early modern abolitionists, mm-hmm. right? Like, And so Nat Turner here is representing the kind of ultimate fear mm-hmm. of Southerners, right? And it's interesting you bring him up as this kind of like the sword of God, mm-hmm. right? This kind of visual metaphor, which is very familiar in the book of Revelations, but is he does he say specifically that what he's doing freeing the slaves is moral or that killing slave owners is moral uh, it's killing slave owners that's very much his uh his aim he believes that god has instructed him to bring about judgment upon the slave owners uh and so yeah and so it, in a lot of sense we want to group him in and if you look at most textbooks you'll see him in the same conversation with someone like gabriel prosser mm-hmm. who in I believe 1800, he led an uprising on uh, Richmond, I mm-hmm. believe. And then also Denmark Vesey, who uh, was a slave in Charleston, who there was the conspiracy that he was about to enact a rebellion. Uh, but in many ways, Turner, he kind of you know, stands on his own in a lot of sense, or in a lot of ways, because he did leave this testimony that is very much um, just kind of uh, dripping with so many biblical allusions. It kind of um, has a different motivation. Sure. Uh, and like you say, uh, the legacy of Turner a lot of times gets placed in a political uh, situated in the middle of a political controversy because immediately after the Turner re- uh, Rebellion, they Virginia has the Virginia slave debates where sure. they question whether or not slavery is practical in Virginia, and then uh, Charles F. Irons has written a book that says that you know the Turner Rebellion was one of the seminal moments in fashioning the sort of pro-slavery Christianity, the sort of pro-slavery ideology that churches would use. Mm-hmm. So yes, yeah, so Turner in many in many ways is a very important political figure in the history of slavery, but also he stands apart in so many ways. Well, sure. And, you know, in thinking about it, you know, using our old-fashioned historiography, you know, it reminds me in some ways of the kind of, you know, historiographical argument in James McArdle, right? You know, the idea of a Southern nation. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, this is also the era when the Southern Baptists are splitting off from the Baptists because they have to reinforce slavery and, you know, Mm -hmm. the Southern Methodists and all that kind of thing. And so, you know, you have this guy who's steeped in this kind of oral tradition of, you know, the the traditional black churches, Mm -hmm. who's using the, like, revelationary language of evangelical Christianity to turn it back in their faces. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's something that I want to try to do with my paper um, is to try to get the focus more on Turner and his religious activities. Because like I said, in one way you can see him as a political actor and his rebellion as a political event. But if you read the document we have, which itself is very controversial, um, it becomes quite clear that he has a certain adroitness um, 
theologically. Like he um, understands, you know, the Bible. He understands religion. And I think in a lot of ways is a testament to just the strength of, you know, this underground black church uh, that is quite active in this period. Now, do you think any of that is the author trying to make him sound more religious? Or do you think Nat Turner really here is, um, you know, espousing his own, you know, prophetic nature? Well, that's the question. And a lot of scholars kind of come down uh, different places as to how believable the document is. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are two literary scholars um, who have just refused to call it the Confessions of Nat Turner and instead call it Thomas Gray's pamphlet. Um, They believe that uh, Gray had certain motives. For one, he he was a disinherited son of a wealthy plantation owner who had just turned to the law to make a living. Um, Gray actually, he wrote a letter uh, to uh, a specific newspaper recounting the events of the Turner Rebellion while Turner was still um, hiding in the woods. Mm-hmm. Um, and that letter very much matches the second half of the document. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people think that he manipulated the text. And we have to remember, he is actually the physical author of the text. You know, He right. was the amanuensis. Turner uh, gave his testimony to him. Uh, and also by, you know, highlighting these religious aspects, it kind of reinforces the idea that Turner is a fanatic. Right. That this is one man's kind of frustrations with bondage. It's his uh, kind of lunacy, which really distances uh, Turner from the relationship between the master and slave. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, well, and in that way, it's kind of different than, say, other bondage narratives, which in some ways are... You know, and we should get back to this, but are, are some ways more powerful because, you know, Uncle Tom's Cabin, for example, gets international acclaim because, you know, it represents slavery as this kind of horrible family destroying thing. But, you know, Uncle Tom becomes this metaphor for the submissive slave. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, there's nothing submissive about Nat Turner. And so I kind of wonder why something like this doesn't, you know, catch on or, or, or you know, I mean, I know it does because mm-hmm. he survives in some ways. Mm-hmm. Right. But he becomes a much more controversial figure. Yeah, and his—I uh, don't know what to call it, what to call it—his his masculinity, his assertiveness, his the you know the violence from his revolt is something that's kind of problematic in a lot of ways. Uh, immediately um, upon his death, uh, Kenneth Greenberg writes about this in one of his books. Uh, Turner's body was not giving a proper burial; it was dissected in a lot of ways. He, while he's it's written about him going to the gallows very honorably. Uh, the newspapers didn't report it that way. They tried to strike down his masculinity, his kind of stoicism in a lot of ways. Uh, and then in the 1960s, uh, there's the famous novel of uh, William Styron, mm-hmm. uh, The Confessions of Nat Turner, which uh, Styron in a lot of ways, his novel is very ahistorical. He takes um, a lot of, uh, he takes a very liberal look at Nat Turner and he makes him very effeminate in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, he his motives are different than what the historical Turner's motives were. We believe uh, he makes Turner become Turner becomes fascinated with this young virginal white girl. Um, Turner becomes someone who, uh, at the time, to enact the rebellion, he's afraid to commit murder. He has his other slaves commit the murder. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Styron sort of takes Turner's very um, kind of the violence of the rebellion and just sort of the Turner's own masculinity and just negates it. Mm -hmm. Um, So in some ways, just how bloody and how violent the rebellion is, is very tough to deal with. And people have dealt with it in different ways. Mm -hmm. 
Well, and it's, it's, it's interesting you bring that up because I, I'm trying to think, you know, in, in the, the pages of The Liberator, for example, is it more influential than to have a submissive slave who's victimized or a strong slave who's somehow a version of masculinity? Because, I mean, you, you bring up he's not given a proper burial and we know that, you know, if med schools needed cadavers, they would re mm. they would like, you know, raid the old, you know, black cemeteries mm. because they weren't considered the same kind of people, but they were still functional mm-hmm. people. And there's this weird body politic in that as well. Mm-hmm. So it, it kind of makes me wonder, you know, in some ways then whose narrative, like you said, we don't know if Thomas Gregg was or Gray was um, writing for himself or to what extent, but is he creating a kind of slave narrative then that is the vengeful slave? You know who is creating the narrative? Uh, Gray. Gray. That could be an option, but the way you know, I still hold that Turner was very much an author of his own text. I think if you look at the particularly the first half of the Confessions, the symbology, um, the various allusions, they fit together far too well mm-hmm. for this to be the work of someone else. Uh, and I also think, too, that if Gray wanted to completely discredit Turner as someone who is just a fanatic, um, a zealot in a lot of ways, he he could have done so and not make it so convincing, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. Sure. Uh, like I said, the, 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 the language that he uses fits together way too well. Um, and, and, and I think that has to be considered part of Turner's resistance. If he sure. is sitting here speaking to Thomas Gray and he uses this language style that very much brings legitimacy to his rebellion. Uh, he's kind of subverting Gray's own attempts to possibly um, objectify Turner, mm-hmm. which is which is a pretty interesting yeah, type yeah. of interchange going on here. And it's this jail cell. Well, and it makes me wonder too, you know, uh, if, if how the interpretation has changed a little bit over time, because I mm-hmm. imagine back in the day, you know, it would have been much more put on Gray as, oh, no, this is just words he's putting in his mouth because this definitely doesn't fit into the lost cause narrative of, you know, slaves are better mm-hmm. off. Under, you know, and he's in many ways here, Nat Turner is saying, you know, no, 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 no. This is a religious calling. You know, what you have done is wrong. And mm-hmm. rather than, like you said, more importantly than freeing slaves, this is God's vengeance on slave owners. Yeah. And that's the, I mean, that, that is, the central issue. I mean, Turner, if you consider him to be a bringer of judgment, you then have to think of what the moral reckoning of slavery is. Mm-hmm. But by pointing out to Turner and saying, oh, he's crazy, he's a fanatic, that you don't have to do, um, you don't have to come to terms with slavery in the same way that you would if you looked at him as someone who is acting on behalf of God. And, you know, and a, you can compare the same kind of treatment in some ways to John Brown, you know, 20 years later, right? Yeah. I, I mentioned earlier that I don't, you know, I think it's obviously acceptable to group Turner with someone like Denmark Vesey, Gabriel Prosser. But I think John Brown is the much more um, appropriate comparison. Mm -hmm. I mean, Brown is, you know, on one hand, one of American history's kind of greatest nuts. He, you know, he knocks down doors and he he even kills a few slaves by mistake. Mm -hmm. And but it's really this hammer of God kind of vengeance that he takes across the south into te- in first into kansas and of course to to the south itself yeah and the the reaction to both of them uh you can't understate you mm-hmm. know how uh petrified the white south was uh, i mean i mentioned that uh turner's rebellion led to these virginia slave debates where they questioned if you know slavery was practical eventually of course you know we all know that slavery remained a very strong pillar of virginia society for years to come uh 
but it led to various questioning and it also kind of restricted slaves freedom in a lot of ways mm-hmm. and you know we obviously see with john brown it was probably more so than anything one of the the, the moments that really kicked off the civil war sure yeah no it's it, it's fascinating because i think like you said before nat turner in some ways is so complicated um that he's almost taught as like trivia right you know you mm-hmm. have toussaint l'ouverture in haiti and the Southerners were like, well, that's another country. The French just don't deal with slaves the same way. And then we have a series of small rebellions building up to Nat Turner's massive rebellion. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that really shakes everyone to their core. Um, do you think Nat Turner is having, for lack of a better term, like a renaissance, that he's coming back as a more important character in American history? I, I think so, for sure. Uh on one hand, right now we're seeing you know the Black Lives Matter, Matter movement, and in a lot of ways, Nat Turner is a folk hero, uh, and so I think that type of um, kind of rhetoric uh, and invoking Nat Turner in a lot of ways is something that's coming back with uh, movements like the Black La- Black Lives Matter movement, and then also too we see uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar, but there's a new movie coming out, it's Birth of a Nation, featuring uh, I'm not sure who, who's the actor, but it is about the Nat Turner story. Uh, my friend's in California right now in L.A. He said it's kind of all the rage in Hollywood. Um, and so, yeah, I think in a lot of ways it is kind of a renaissance for Nat Turner. I'm very excited to see the movie. Before we get any further, though, why don't we stop for a moment and listen to the trailer for Birth of a Nation. Seven trees. Barren, strange fruit. Heavenly Father. We come to thank you for your word and your will. Blood on the leaves. And blood at the roots. You listen to him and you might just make it into heaven. Amen. Black bodies swinging in the southern breeze. Submit yourselves to your masters. With all respect. Strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees. Brethren, I pray you sing a new song. Sing praise in the assembly of the righteous. Let the saints be joyful in glory. saints and a two-edged sword in their hands to execute vengeance on the demonic nations and punishments on those peoples to bind their kings with chains dishonor have all his saints praise the lord praise the lord sing to him a new song Excellent. Well, I wanted to make sure you heard that just so not only did you get to hear what we were talking about, but also a lot of the dialogue, especially near the end of the trailer, comes directly from the confessions of Nat Turner. We're recording this right on the cusp of the Oscars, and there's that whole controversy Mm -hmm. with no black actors or directors nominated, and you have um, even white actors from black movies like Creed are nominated. Mm Um, you know, compared to Black Lives Matter, compared to this kind of rise in a black power movement where, you know, seeking heroes, um, it makes perfect sense that Bl- Rise's Birth of a Nation is coming back now. Yeah. Know? Well, I mean, that's 
what the story of Nat Turner is, is a moment of, you know, black empowerment. He's taking his, you know, life into his own hands, um, and he's doing it in ways that, you know, the white community is incredibly uncomfortable with. Mm-hmm. And then, from the moment the rebellion is enacted, uh, there's attempts, whether it's by Thomas Gray, whether it's by William Styron, to sort of um, take that empowerment away from him. Mm-hmm. So now we're in a moment where, uh, obviously, with the Black Lives Matter movement, that you know, black empowerment is it's, it's certainly a thing. And so, how do we, how people react to that, um, is still something that I think people are trying to adjust to. Mm-hmm. So Nat Turner is still, in my opinion, very relevant. Well, I appreciate that you brought this to the table because I think. Yeah, I mean, it, it's fascinating, you know, and lecturing my, my, my normal history class, you asked the question, why the title Birth of a Nation? Mm-hmm. Because it's it's a very invoking title. And, you know, the original, based on the Ku Klux Klan, um, has this kind of idea that, well, in the 19-teens, you know, post-Reconstruction, what saves, what rebirths America is this return to white supremacy and, mm-hmm. you know, putting black people back in their pay- place. This movie is arguing the complete difference, mm-hmm. right? You know, the, the birth of the nation is when slaves start to rise up and that ultimately it's the work towards a more equal society. Mm-hmm. And I think it's it's kind of this fascinating moment to look back at Nat Turner, mm-hmm. you know. Um, well, Ben, thanks for coming out. Yeah, awesome. Great. Thank you. This has been a production of Dude Letter Podcasting and the Georgia Association of Historians. It was hosted and edited by Nick Hoffman. The theme music was String Quartet Number no. 12 in F Major, American, by Antonin Dvorak. The trailer at the beginning is copyright Fox Searchlight. All rights reserved. Thanks for listening.